I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hello, Miriam. Hey, Mark. Great to see you. Good to see you too. And very exciting to have Commissioner Ed Santo from the Australian Human Rights Commission on today. I am really excited to be talking with him because he has a deep history in human rights and technology. And so being able to talk to someone who's been at that intersection for years is really a privilege. Uh, And in addition, they just recently published a report that he's been working on for quite some time. Uh, We'll get to hear from him what that process was like and what some of the most important recommendations are that we can all learn from. Yeah, from what I have read, it sounds like an extraordinary uh, effort that they have taken to produce that report. And so I'm really looking forward to hearing how they approached that and, and what the outcomes were. Me too. So let's dive in. We are so pleased to be joined today by Commissioner Edward Santo of the Australian Human Rights Commission. Ed has served on the Commission since 2016 and leads the Commission's work on so many important areas, including technology and human rights, which we look forward to talking with him more about today, refugees and migration, human rights affecting LGBTI persons, counterterrorism and national security, and so many other important areas. In addition to his work at the Commission, he's a fellow at the Australian Academy of Law, a visiting professorial fellow, and a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Human Rights and the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Prior to joining the Commission, he was Chief Executive of the Public Interest Advocacy Center. And today in particular, we're so excited to talk with him about a report that was recently released on May 27th, the Human Rights and Technology Final Report, with 38 recommendations to ensure that human rights are upheld in Australian laws, policies, funding, and education on AI. Ed, thank you for joining our show. We could not be more excited to talk with you today. Uh, It's great to be with you. To start out, we'd love to understand how this became a passion for you to intersect human rights and technology. You know, one thing we've often said is that so many lives lost in the fight for civil rights and human rights can be undone. All the efforts and and gains made can be undone in a few lines of code. And so to understand that you are leading this effort, that you are right there at the intersection and ensuring the safety in Australia and across the globe uh, gives us so much uh, uh, encouragement. And and we'd love to hear how this became a passion for you. Um, Such a great way to start because we could see uh, that here in Australia and, and right around the world, we were all living through what amounts to a quiet revolution. Um, you know, the cell phone, smartphones that we carry around in our pockets are literally millions of times more powerful than the computers that took um, humans to the moon. Uh, and uh, that, that, that power of computing is changing. It's radically changing the way we live our lives. Um, sometimes for the best. We can see how a smartphone, for example, can make the world more inclusive. It can foster communication for everyone. If you happen to be blind, um, you can hold up a, just a typical smartphone now and it'll tell you um, what, what is uh, in the world around you. And that is radically changing lives for the better. Uh, at the Human Rights Commission, we, we, we really want to shine a light on those things, but it's my melancholy duty as Human Rights Commissioner perhaps to also focus on the risks and threats of harm. And they're real. 
and they have been under-focused on. So I think we've had a, a useful conversation over the last sort of 10 years about um, how artificial intelligence engages the right to privacy. But there's a range of other rights that are perhaps even more important in, um, in, in, in regard to the use of artificial intelligence. So particularly when AI is, made, is used to make important decisions that affect us, it is crucial that those decisions and the process of making those decisions is fair, accurate and accountable. And all too often, it's not. And so our report um, and our entire project is about sh shining a light also on where things are going wrong and what we need to do to fix it. Fantastic. Um, what an important and, and timely piece of work. So let's, let's, let's dive into it a little bit. Um, I'm curious who was involved in the, in the creation of the report, how you designed and built and executed the process of, of writing this report, uh, which is, is, is it's big, it's comprehensive, it's 200 pages long and includes 38 recommendations. Uh, tell us a bit about how it came to be three years ago and, 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 and what the process was like, and then we'll dive a little bit into some of those recommendations. It's definitely the biggest thing that I will have worked on in my term as Human Rights Commissioner. Um, so you're quite right. We started three years ago and we knew that we had some of the expertise in-house, certainly um, the legal and human rights expertise, but we also knew that we needed to bring together a much bigger group so um, we worked uh, as, as part, uh, in partnership with a number of um, leading organisations, both here in Australia and um, overseas as, as partners, one of which, of course, was the World Economic Forum. Um, and what we decided to do was to do a two-stage consultation process that um, worked with people in industry, civil society, uh, experts in academia and elsewhere, but also the community, ordinary people in the community. And that two-stage process is really important because we needed to do something that is known in the game as a bit deliberative. Um, if, if you ask people a couple of years ago in particular, um, what is artificial intelligence? You'd get a very, very broad range of answers. And that's understandable because it's not a term of art, um, but, but it'd be fair to say that most people just sim simply didn't know what it was. Um, and so we needed to uh, give people just some basic factual information and get their views on the, on the basis of that. But we also need to come back to them a second time and say, well, um, you know, you've had a bit of a time to, to uh, mull over this. Um, here are some proposals and draft recommendations for change. What do you think about that? Throw some rotten tomatoes at us if you think we got it wrong, um, if we need to change course or, or tell us where you think we got it right. And so, so we did that process. We um, commissioned three sets of uh, polling, opinion polling throughout the, the process as well to um, get a bit more quantitative data to kind of augment the qualitative data. And so what it means is that three years on, we're really confident with where we have landed in, in terms of setting out what we think are some of the most important human rights implications in the rise of artificial intelligence, um, but also really clear, uh, actionable recommendations to ensure that our rights are upheld. Well, so let's talk about these recommendations. And while 38 is many, I bet it was hard to narrow down. I'm sure there were some on the cutting board that you uh, miss. <laughs> so uh, let us know, how did you prioritize these 38s? Are there any surprises that you weren't expecting to come into that 
And, and why is it 38? How did you decide on, on how many there should be? Yeah, we wanted to choose the minimum number, but that still allowed us to um, get the full breadth of uh, the input that we received. Um, and we, we, we did it really through a process of um, rigorous refinement. So we, we had that consultation process. We also had an expert reference group, which had some of the kind of world's leading experts on artificial intelligence, but also on human rights. And we just worked really hard to kind of get to um, a, a small enough number. But, but we also started with a number of hypotheses. And some of them, I can now confess, were dangerously wrong. <laughs> so what, one of the hypotheses that we started with was that artificial intelligence is so new that countries like the United States and Australia and you know, developed countries around the world would need to kind of start afresh with a whole new set of uh, laws and um, regulations to deal with the rise of AI. Now that turns out to be completely wrong. <laughs> um, there are existing laws that are very important because they are applicable to the use of AI in decision-making, but, and this is the really important problem, uh, they have not been rigorously applied to the use and development of AI. So laws like anti-discrimination laws should protect us, um, whether you're using an abacus to make a decision in a very conventional way, or if you are using the most sophisticated form of AI. And we need to make sure those laws are applied. So we, we do have some uh, reform, so some, some tweaks to legislation that we feel need to be made. But on the whole, it's about applying the existing laws more effectively. It's, it's so interesting you say that. This is a frequent topic of conversation on our podcast. And I think uh, the uh, really the big trend I think has has been consistent with with what you've said in terms of what we've been hearing is that um, as people have dived into these different use cases in, for example, uh, decision making around uh, employment or around um, uh, um, healthcare or access to credit or whatever it may be, these are actually areas that have quite a lot of statute already on the books in most countries. Uh, but this critical step of applying them is um, is really lacking so far in terms of in terms of practice. Uh, so one of the things that was new um, in the report that we were interested in was the proposal for creating an AI safety commissioner. Um, now this is obviously a new thing um, that would that would sort of change the way in which AI was approached by governments beyond just applying existing law. And I'm wondering if you could talk us through that and and maybe starting with kind of what you see as the biggest threats and risks that AI poses that we would want to have a safety commissioner in place to help respond to? So the, the starting point um, really uh, is, is uh, an observation that you just alluded to, Mark, and that is that artificial intelligence on the whole doesn't allow us to do things that are wholly new. In other words, we're not using AI to teleport ourselves from one place to another. Instead, AI, at least now and in the foreseeable future, allows us to do things that we've always done, but in new ways. Now that is significant from a regulatory perspective because uh, the existing regulators, what they need to do is to change the way that they regulate in order to keep up with the private sector and public sector organizations 
that they're responsible for overseeing. And so the crucial role for an AI safety commissioner is to build the capacity of that existing regulatory ecosystem to make sure that, for example, if you're the regulator responsible for banks and financial institutions, uh, those, those bodies around the world in countries like Australia, the United States, Canada, and Europe, those countries, although those companies are investing very heavily in the top two sectors in, in AI. So they're using algorithms to make decisions about who gets bank loans and so on. So the regulators need to be much more au fait than they already are about how those decisions are made, where some of the points of risk are, so that they can zero in on those points, can work hopefully uh, constructively with those banks to, to help them um, kind of you know, protect their own uh, customers, but also to be conscious where things might go wrong and in, ensure that um, citizens or also consumers are able to enforce their rights. And so, so that, that's the crucial role of the AI Safety Commission, not to be a new regulator, but rather to lift the capacity of the existing regulatory ecosystem. What a novel idea, what an interesting idea. I think it's probably controversial in some uh, segments, at least in the US when it's come up to have a, a separate department. Um, it, it's, you know, there's very strong opinions from different sides on whether or not that's the right way to go. Uh, I'm really glad you're talking about the laws on the books as being applicable. Um, you know, it's really helpful to see how across the globe, uh, this is a consistent theme where we absolutely need new laws and regulations, but the way our legal systems were built is, is to apply uh, somewhat outdated laws to new emerging technologies. This is what we've done with the automobile, with with trains, with you know the telephone. We we constantly are applying the basic values and concepts uh, to these new technologies. And you're illustrating that uh, in Australia and across the globe, uh, this continues to be the case. But uh, as we think about what we need in addition, what are some of the uh, recommendations that uh, you find where we're building new bridges, we're creating new opportunities, uh, and where have you seen some pushback in the recommendations that you've offered so far? Yeah, so two quick observations. First, um, I think that the step that all governments need to do is um, kind of a, a categorizing one. Uh, to work out which laws are kind of already fit for purpose because they're framed in a technologically neutral way and which laws, as, as you say, are a bit outdated. So on the whole, um, laws that protect fairness, anti-discrimination laws in particular, are generally already fit for purpose. And um, there, there's a really important point to be made here. So maybe I can just illustrate with a quick example. If, uh, let, let's say a woman was applying for a bank loan and she walks um, to a bricks and mortar bank and there's a sign in the window that says, um, this bank does not accept female customers. Now, everyone, probably the world over, would know that that is just completely unlawful, that it, that is clearly flagrantly discriminatory. But if an algorithm had the same effect, in other words, she applies for the bank loan online, it's an algorithm that knocks her back and she's knocked back effectively because she's a woman too often we start to question ourselves because that is exactly the same as a question of law. That is just as unlawful. But we start to say, hmm, is that a legal problem or is it an ethical problem? And that's a terrible mistake to make. 
because it is a legal problem. It's not an ethical problem because it's not something that, you know, the bank can just kind of choose how to, um, you know, proceed. We need to be crucial, crystal clear in saying that that is just as unlawful and we need to apply those laws more effectively. And that's where I say that those laws are not outdated. They're, they just need to be applied. Um, so that takes us to the second point, which is what are some of the areas of, of law that do need to be reformed? And, and it's often in the area of uh, a right to reasons or a right to an explanation. So we know that AI is often um, kind of used in a black box or opaque way where it's harder to understand the basis of the decision. You know, it kind of sometimes gets um, summarised down to the computer says no. Um, so kind of working with that example, you, you're a woman, you apply for a bank loan, you get knocked back. You're kind of left with this unsettling feeling. Was I knocked back because of my sex or my gender or was it just a legitimate um, decision to, to say no? But if all you get by way of explanation is, well, that's what the algorithm said, um, you can never do something which is absolutely fundamental to the rule of law, and that is to um, enforce the law, to, to, to be sure that the law has been properly applied. And so one of the areas of reform that we are proposing is both for um, the public sector and the private sector, whenever they're using um, AI or whatever technology to make a decision, that there should be um, a bare minimum by way of explanation that is provided to the end user, you know, usually the customer or the citizen. And uh, that is necessary in order to safeguard what, what I would say is central to our liberal democracy, the rule of law. Uh, and so in a sense, I would say that's a modest proposal. Um, in another sense, we are realistic enough to know that at some point we're going to get some likely pushback there because that will require some adjustment to the way in which AI informed decisions are made. It is often easier to uh, create a, an AI system that is black box, that doesn't yield an explanation. Um, but the best minds in the world, and I've literally gone around the world asking the best minds about this, um, is that uh, a problem about AI or is that a design problem? And, it's, and the better view is clearly that it's a design problem. You can always, design an AI system in a way that it will um, provide you with a sufficient explanation of, of, of how it reached your result, but you have to design that into the system. And sometimes that takes a little bit more time, but it means that you will be able to comply with the law in a demonstrable way, but you also get more accurate decisions. So for example, the, the woman who gets knocked back for a bank loan because she's a woman, in other words, not for a legitimate reason, that I care about that because that's a human rights violation. Um, and the bank should care about it for that reason too. But they should also care about it because they've lost a commercial opportunity there. They've lost a good customer. And similarly, if as a middle-aged white man, I get an advantage um, in applying for a bank loan that I don't deserve, um, and I'm actually a bad customer, well, then they've taken on a risk that they didn't need to. And so there's a real commercial uh, imperative in, in doing this as well. So yes, we're expecting a little bit of pushback. We haven't received it yet, but it's only been out for a week, our report. But I'm hoping that over time, there'll be a real understanding that uh, what we're calling for by way of better explanation is both important for any country that takes its liberal democratic principles seriously, but also important for companies that want to be in it for the kind of medium to long term 
and uh, have really reliable, accurate decisions. I love that answer, Ed, because I think that, um, you know, while obviously uh, the, the human rights dimension here is, is paramount and, um, you know, that is reason enough to demand and expect that level of explainability and accountability, just having a well-developed narrative, as you've just shared with us, about why it is also good for business and uh, clearly uh, you know, sort of a multiple bottom line thing to do uh, seems to me to be strategically uh, advantageous in terms of um, telling that story and getting industry and business to, to, to come along with you on this on this journey into a more fair AI future. So I absolutely love that. I, I really want to just um, pause on that for a second. Uh, the next question I want to ask you is, is about sort of next steps for the report and how you're going to implement it. But I'm going to interrupt myself and just just dive in on one semantic point in the last answer, uh, because uh, often in our podcast and in the AI discourse in general, uh, we hear about AI ethics, we hear about law, and we hear about human rights. And, and, and sometimes they're used in a kind of interchangeable way. And sometimes they're also fiercely contested uh, as being different and distinct from one another in ways that are important and that we really ought to insist on differentiating between them uh, on the basis of. So I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit of your view of kind of the relationship with respect to AI governance between ethics, law, and human rights. Um, yeah, so we, we are quite concerned about the rise of a, um, a discussion about AI ethics that is a bit disconnected from reality. Um, so there is a proper role for ethics uh, in trying to you know, regulate a system, um, but it should be clearly defined and it should be de defined in, in I, I would say, an orthodox way. Uh, and so in any liberal democracy, in any, um, in any country, frankly, that doesn't believe in a Hobbesian view where it's, you know, survival of the strongest and everybody else gets crushed, the starting point is to follow the law. That, that's not a revolutionary thing to say. That's just something that has served us very well. So companies and governments have to start by saying, what am I legally required to do? Um, and that's that's why I said in that example before, you know, if an algorithm uh, treats someone unfairly on the basis of their sex or their gender or their race or their age, that's not primarily an ethical question. That is a legal question. And it matters. It's not just a semantic issue. It matters because if something is a legal issue, then you must comply. By contrast, if something is an ethical issue, then that's a choice, right? That That's something where the company or the government agency gets to choose how to proceed. And so maybe they will do something about it, maybe they won't. If in any other sector, uh, you know, companies, leading companies said, well, you know, we're gonna take a more ethical approach and that's gonna mean we can kind of ignore the law. You'd say that that's completely unacceptable. We don't say that about other areas, like if you're manufacturing cars or airplanes or whatever, we, we certainly don't say it in healthcare. Um, areas that really are high stakes. And so essentially all we're calling for is a, a kind of um, a, a re-commitment uh, to what we would call, call the regulatory pyramid. Um, and if you can imagine just a kind of a triangle with sort of three layers, the first layer at the top is the law. 
Everyone has to work out what the law means to them um, and they must comply with it. The second layer down is the regulatory ecosystem. So regulators, courts, um, you know, lawyers who, who assist ordinary people, uh, they, they need to help to uphold the law. That, that's their role in, uh, in any democracy. And then there's a the third layer down and that's the proper place for ethics. So what ethics um, can do is it can fill the interstices uh, in other words, the gaps in between the law, where, where the law is silent and is appropriately silent. Um, and that's where people can make um, uh, decisions, uh, ethical decisions that comport with their own view about what is right or wrong. And uh, we think that in the technology space, that very orthodox view needs to be uh, recommitted to. Thanks, Ed, um, for, for clarifying that. Uh, it's something that we've danced around in a lot of our discussions, and uh, it's just very helpful to have um, uh, a straightforward and, and compelling articulation. Uh, so I've interrupted my own train of thought with that question, but we'd love to hear about, you know, what are the next steps? How do um, the, the proposals become a reality? Um, how do you anticipate uh, the government, the private sector, and others um, taking forward this vision yeah so uh we're really excited about moving to the next steps um and for us it, it starts with a um a conversation with uh people here in australia and, and globally participated in lots of international forums I, I spoke at the special g7 meeting in montreal a couple of years ago on artificial intelligence and we we know that these things can't just be worked out in one country then they, they need to be done across borders so uh, of the kind of early uh, period after the release of the report is about acculturating people to the recommendations and the principles that we've uh, laid out. And then here in Australia, uh, we're working with our federal government as well as the state uh, governments as well to start to implement those recommendations. Um, I feel that there's, there's a fair bit of low hanging fruit um, in, uh, in our report, um, but it's, it starts with a vision. And, and, you know, I, I sometimes feel like we're living in a favoured dream of competing visions. So on the one hand, there are dystopian visions of, of artificial intelligence and facial recognition being used um, in a very authoritarian way, as we've sometimes seen in places um, in China, for example, social credit um, schemes in Chinese cities, um, in ways that, that, you know, in a liberal democracy like Australia feel uh, feel very fear-inducing. Um, and then we have these utopian visions of AI, basically kind of meaning that we no longer have to work and we can just sort of sit back and relax and, and enjoy the, the life. Um, and, and in a sense, there's some truth in both of those visions, but ultimately I think now in 2021, we're at a crossroads and we have to make very important decisions to make sure that um, that dystopian possibility is foreclosed and instead that we are able to have um, a kind of AI that gives us what we want and need and not what we fear. And so, so that, that means um, governments committing to uh, a kind of a process of reform that will uh, get us there. Well, we have so many questions for you, but um, what I also was hoping you could tell us is that with the report, obviously Australia was your main 
focus. Um, but since AI does not know borders and since these issues are so universal, uh, I was hoping you could share with us if you were to advise another government. And if it's helpful to narrow that down, we can have our own biased lens of if you were advising the US government. Uh, what would you say are the most important steps to ensure that we have responsible AI? Uh, and, and both in the process you underwent, which hopefully every government will do such an important uh, overview and study of what needs to be updated and, and undertaken in order to ensure human rights are appreciated and AI is inclusive, uh, and the competitive advantage you mentioned too, which uh, we you know always emphasize as well. But uh, in the universal lessons, both in the study and in the recommendations, what are some of the top line points you would want uh, the US to learn? So I think there are three key things. And we, we have been speaking with uh, the US government throughout this process. And I think I'm meeting um, in a few weeks with uh, President Biden's uh, advisor on artificial intelligence. And uh, it starts with uh, being very clear on what the community wants. Um, and we just got such a strong, clear and consistent message from the Australian community that they want three things from the use of AI. It, it, it should be fair, it should be accurate, and it should be accountable. And I was I was not surprised by that, but I was surprised that people on the whole said, you know what, we don't really mind whether important decisions are made by a human or by a machine or some kind of combination of both, but they must be fair, accurate, and accountable. So I suspect you'd get a very similar answer in the US and in other countries that have a, a similar kind of um, culture of liberal democracy as Australia, but it's it's always important to ask. Uh, the second step is, is then to go from there to formulate a clear vision for um, what AI looks like. And I love the way you just put it then, Miriam. Responsible AI, I think, is, is putting it absolutely perfectly. So we, we have had a conversation primarily about ethical AI, and I, li I like some aspects of that, but it does... Uh, blur the line between what a legal um, obligation is and what is something that you might just do or not do, depending on your personal preference. Whereas responsible AI, I think, is able to marry the two. And so that that is precisely the vision that I would hope uh, liberal democratic countries in particular would uh, commit to because it's so um, central to, um, to, to, to how they organise themselves and how they protect their citizens. And then the third element is to then um, kind of ensure that there's a way of aligning that vision with action. So our first recommendation is that Australia's national strategy on new and emerging technologies should have right at its core, a commitment to uh, human rights and as you put it, responsible AI, or we, we call it responsible innovation, it's the same idea. So again, the kind of multiple bottom lines, something for everyone. I, I love it. Um, it's just a, a really inspiring vision. So we, we, we've taken a lot of your time and I, I want to be respectful of your, your schedule. Uh, we like to end the podcast with a question that we ask all of our guests. And I'm particularly interested in asking it to you because you've been so immersed in the world of AI through this process, learning about all of the different use cases, applications, exciting opportunities, uh, scary 
possible risks. So the question is is around the rose and the thorn and the bud of AI. So I'm curious uh, what you are most excited about uh, and, and, and sort of happy to see, that's the rose, uh, what you're most scared of and frightened of, the thorn, and then what might be coming down the pipeline far out on the horizon uh, that, that we should be thinking more about? That's the bud. So I think the rose is the capacity for AI to make our world more inclusive. Um, we know that human decision-making is far from accurate um, in, in many situations, and it, and it can really be quite prejudiced in, in many ways. If we get AI right, it can be a very important corrector of some of those problems. And it can um, kind of interact very well with the best of human decision-making and the best of AI-powered decision-making. And we're seeing that in a number of ways. For example, you know, in a way that is particularly significant um, in the middle of the pandemic, um, some uses of AI in healthcare uh, changing the world for the better. Um, you know, even outside of the pandemic area, you know, the um, best human doctors are not able to diagnose skin cancer as accurately as um, AI-powered uh, diagnostic tools now, which is amazing, right? And in a country like Australia, which is very sunny <laughs> most of the year around, that will change lives for the better. It will lead to earlier diagnosis and better, more accurate diagnosis and, and therefore better treatment. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, the thorn, I guess, is that dystopian vision that, you know, perhaps through an over-enthusiasm about the uh, potential of AI, perhaps sometimes we, we um, look a little bit to science fiction as if it were reality. Um, so an example might be uh, facial recognition in policing. Um, that is uh, not nearly as accurate as the TV shows that we all watch might suggest. And it's probably less accurate, in fact, than anyone we know who is not blind, right? It has huge levels of inaccuracy. And the inaccuracy is not evenly distributed. It's much more inaccurate when it's used on uh, people of color, um, women, people with physical disability. And so that could um, ultimately lead to injustice at scale if we don't have clear boundaries around how um, that sort of technology uh, that is AI powered is used. And then the bud, I think, is the growing awareness in the community about AI being um, neither wholly good nor wholly bad. I think people, as I said, are, are really um, becoming increasingly alert to the fact that um, the use of AI can engage a range of their basic civil and human rights. And uh, increasingly, they're demanding. That, uh, that, that human rights be baked in to the AI that is used by and on them. And I think that's such an important message for governments and companies to hear because that will help drive a much more responsible approach to AI. Well, thank you. You've given us so much to look forward to. Thank you for leading this effort for the whole globe to learn from and follow. Uh, and thank you for sharing your insights with us today. We're really grateful for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you both as well. Thank you, Ed. Well, Mark, that was certainly an interesting episode. What were some of the interesting takeaways for you? 
a lot of interesting takeaways. I, I thought Ed was just so articulate on, on so many points. I firstly am just really impressed by the, the process that they use to, to develop and, and then now uh, put out their report on human rights and technology. It sounds like there was just a huge amount of thoughtfulness and effort in terms of engaging government, engaging industry, and then engaging citizens, and, and, and not just engaging with them, but also educating them as they did so. Because, of course, a lot of people who are interacting with AI systems, uh, for example, the uh, proverbial woman who is denied a bank loan by an algorithmic credit uh, assessment um, uh, process, are not necessarily as aware as uh, Ed or, or, or we or other um, experts and practitioners may be. And so educating the public while also seeking their input, I just thought was a, a really thoughtful approach. Uh, the other thing that I really appreciated was his breakdown of how he sees the relationship between law and policy, regulation, ethics, and human rights. As I mentioned, when asking him about that, I think that these terms are used pretty fast and loose in the discourse around AI. And from what I heard him say, it sounds like we should be a little bit more thoughtful about how we use those terms uh, and how we think about them. So a lot there uh, on my side. What about you? What jumped out? Well, yeah, I think you definitely asked the right person that question of, of the various buckets that we too often use interchangeably. I was really struck by his initial framing that we are in a quiet revolution. Um, I like that that uh, way of thinking about what's happening here. It also gives me hope. Um, a lot of what he said gives me hope um, that he was thinking of ultimately AI as being helpful in reducing bias and that after all of his work in the human rights space and in this in-depth study of technology that he comes out the other side saying that he thinks it can help us overcome some of our traditional historic challenges as for human bias, I thought was very encouraging. Uh, I think the fact that, you know, it was very subtle. He just mentioned that his report will be both public and private sector application. Um, you know, that is something we're coming to hear more now, but a few years ago, the thought of public sector and AI would have been uh, something that people would raise an eyebrow of. Uh, so, so good that they have taken that on, that they understand that uh, the government is as much of a, a, of a user of AI and uh, as standard setter um, and, and, and likewise is um, looking at both of those roles. Uh, and finally, I was really struck by his uh, insight or his what he gleaned that that he found that the members of his community were not worried about whether a process was fully automated or human so much as that the three principles of fairness, accuracy, and accountability were very much a part of that process. I thought that was uh, really a novel way to look at it, not that those are the priorities uh, for the general population, uh, but that the mechanism became secondary to those primary principles. That's such a good point, Miriam. I think that uh, those of us who spend all day thinking about AI tend to put AI at the center of our thinking when it is probably the case, and it sounds like certainly in Australia it is the case, that most people are less concerned about AI as such and more about things like fairness and do they understand why a decision was made and so on. And I think Ed just really reminded me to, to, to make sure to keep that in sight. 
uh, and to, 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 to kind of really keep that as the North Star, um, you know, do people feel like the systems that are determining important aspects of their lives are fair? Do they understand them? Can they get an explanation from them? So I think that's just, for me, huge inspiration that I will take forward from this conversation. And along those lines, that the laws on the books are applicable, that a lot of what we need, we already have at our disposal. We just have to be awake to that and, and be thoughtful about how to connect the two. So, so much to uh, to think through. He gave me a lot of food for thought and a lot of inspiration. And uh, now I can't wait for our next episode. Likewise, I'll look forward to that. See you soon, Miriam. Bye, Mark. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 